Hi, and welcome to another episode of Outside Influence, a podcast that explores how politics, culture, and the media shape our outdoor experiences. I'm your host, Michelle Presley. In our last episode, we discussed the basics of how politics influences the outdoors. We took some time to get to know the elected and appointed officials who manage America's public lands and looked into President Biden's plan to limit energy extraction on federal public lands and conserve 30% of American land and water by 2030. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend checking it out as an intro to outdoor policy. This episode is going to be a little different than previous episodes. Today, we're going to take a step back. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of policy or talk about any specific outdoor issues in the media and pop culture. Instead, we're going to zoom out and discuss what it means to be a critical conservationist and why that label matters to me. You may have seen that I refer to myself as a critical conservationist in the show's description or in my social media bios. And before we go any further into this show's topics of politics, culture, and media, I think it's worth dedicating some time for me to briefly share how my background in critical political economy research and my career in sustainability influence the topics I select for outside influence, and also how I research and cover them. That is, I think it makes sense to examine the meaning of critical conservation, because it's the lens through which I view the world and my own outdoor experiences, which naturally shapes the topics we cover on this show. Maybe in doing so, you'll find that you also consider yourself a critical conservationist, and I think that would be pretty cool. So for this episode breakdown, we'll come to an understanding about what it means to be a critical conservationist by discussing what I mean by each word in that two-part phrase. So let's break it down. Starting with the critical part, I think critical is one of those words that can have a lot of different meanings, depending on the context it's being used. Some people might think of critical in reference to criticism, like someone who is overly critical of others in a nitpicky or micromanaging kind of way. Or we might also think about critical as a word that means something desperately needed or important, like critical aid being rendered after an accident. When I say critical in this context, I'm talking about something a little bit different than both of those definitions. I'm referring to a way of understanding the world that is predicated on questioning assumptions and systems of power. I'm talking about the critical research methodology, as in critical thinking. When we examine the world critically, we're posing questions that go beyond prevailing assumptions and understandings. This process is also pretty reflective. Critical researchers have to think about their own biases and blind spots in this process. It also means that we're acknowledging the role of power and how the people in power and the ideologies they espouse literally shape the world. This is why you'll hear me say things like, outdoor recreation doesn't exist in a vacuum. Everything from where parks and other protected areas are located, to the cost of outdoor gear, to the big isms like racism, sexism, and classism, influence people's perceptions of the outdoors and who goes there. 
To recognize the systems of power is also important when discussing outdoor issues because it allows us to see how assumptions about who goes outside and how is shaped by issues of race, class, and gender. Additionally, you'll hear me talk a lot about historical context on this show. This is also part of the critical research methodology because we know that history continues to influence the present. For instance, we'll talk about two almost mythic conservation figures in the canon of American public lands today, and who historically has had the privilege and opportunity to shape outdoor policy still carries repercussions for people who enjoy the outdoors today. The critical eye allows us to see the outdoors as a space that is absolutely influenced by things like history or politics or portrayals in the media. To be critical in our understanding of and love for the outdoors means we're always looking for the existing systems of power and questioning how those systems of power impact the land and the people who live there and visit. We ask questions like, who benefits from this and why? And especially where public lands are concerned, I like to raise the question of whether the public's interest is being served by outdoor policy. And if not, what's getting in the way? and what can we do about it? Now, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about conservation. Conservation simply refers to the care and protection of resources so they can persist for future generations. When we talk about land conservation, we're talking about maintaining the conditions that allow for diverse species and ecosystems to persist. Conservation is similar to preservation, but while both relate to the protection of nature, their proponents strive to accomplish this task in different ways. Conservationists seek the sustainable use of nature for humans, by humans, for activities like hiking, hunting, logging, or mining, while preservationists aim to protect nature from human use. In the United States, there was a pretty big debate about whether the country should adopt a more preservationist or conservationist ethic when establishing our public lands during the 60s and 70s. Here's where we're going to get into some of that historical context. The conservationist and preservationist divide is usually demonstrated by examining the political influences of preservationist John Muir and conservationist Gifford Pinchot. John Muir was a naturalist and writer, perhaps most well-known for his role in establishing Yosemite as a national park and founding the Sierra Club. Alternatively, you may know John Muir from the one too many times you've seen his writing used as an Instagram caption or in someone's Tinder bio. Anyway, Muir believed that spending time in the wilderness was a way that people could connect with God. In fact, he often described the granite walls of Yosemite Valley as a cathedral. He made the case that places like Yosemite should be preserved in perpetuity because of their beauty and connection to the divine. Gifford Pinchot, on the other hand, was the first head of the U.S. Forest Service. In his work, he advocated for a wise-use philosophy for the management of public lands. That is, he believed that our public lands should serve some kind of tangible benefit to people, be it for recreation, lumber, energy, or other uses. The goal of conservation, then, is not to protect public lands as spaces entirely devoid of human intervention, but rather as spaces that would be protected enough to sustain the resources that people were extracting from the land. Both men famously pled their cases to President Teddy Roosevelt as to why their land protection ethic should be the dominant one. Because we have the clarity of hindsight, we know how Muir and Pinchot shook out in the end. 
In some ways, American public lands encompass both preservationist and conservationist ethics. The goal of national parks, for instance, is preservation with an emphasis on causing minimal change to the landscape or environment. There are also designated wilderness areas that have codified minimal human impact into the laws and regulation of federal wilderness. Meanwhile, national forests and BLM land can be used for cattle grazing, lumber, hunting, and recreation. That's all well and good. But I think it's time to circle back to the critical part for me to explain why I see myself as a critical conservationist. The critical researcher and thinker in me hears the lore of Muir and Pinchot and can't help but to think, gee, two white guys influencing public land policy for an entire nation. You have to wonder, if this is the story of our public lands that we're being told, who and what is being left out? This is going to be a super abridged and only partial answer to those questions. But briefly, the preservationists led by John Muir sought to preserve an unpeopled wilderness that never actually was. Yes, this is the biggest twist of the whole wilderness mystique. There were people there all along. When pioneers pursued their manifest destiny to tame the wilderness and settle the West, They were arriving uninvited to the homelands of indigenous people. And while Muir was lying beneath the ponderosa pines and waxing poetic about the Yosemite Valley's beauty, Muir found its residents, quote, most ugly and some of them altogether hideous, end quote. Muir openly argued that a wilderness as pure and holy as Yosemite was marred by people. And he wrote that the indigenous people who already live there, quote, seem to have no right place in the landscape, and I was glad to see them fading out of sight down the pass, end quote. Villages in the valley were burned to the ground, their inhabitants either killed or forced off the land. Ironically and tragically, these strange creatures, as Mir described them, were the ones responsible for many of the features that gave Yosemite Valley the aesthetic qualities that Muir and his followers valued. The indigenous people knew how the meadows were dependent on periodic fires. Their burns managed the underbrush of the forest and maintained biodiversity. Of course, Muir thought that fires were a scourge on the landscape, and in the years after the removal of the valley's indigenous people, unchecked growth of the understory led to a decline in the ecosystem's overall health. Not to mention expensive wildfires from all the buildup of detritus on the forest floor. Muir's people-free preservation ideal directly shaped the national park policy in places like Yosemite. And as America's greatest idea caught on, the National Park Service and Bureau of Indian Affairs systematically separated indigenous people from the landscapes they cherished across the country. I think one of the biggest ironies here is that Muir's philosophies on wilderness preservation were shaped by spending time in wilderness. He was moved by the religious experience of spending time in nature. So moved, in fact, that he wanted to make sure it was difficult for others to have those same experiences by advocating for an entirely unpeopled wilderness ideal. Therein lies the crux of the National Park Service's current diversity problem. Those in power determine the history of a place. That history shapes the present. And here we are with an underfunded park service that serves a visitorship that is nearly 80% white. 
So I call myself a critical conservationist because I don't believe in the wilderness myth that there was just this pristine, untouched land before European settlers arrived in the Americas. I believe that people do have a part in the landscape. Indigenous people cared for and very much effectively managed the land prior to their forcible removal. The beautiful, healthy forests, rivers, and grasslands were not a matter of happenstance. But thanks to the indigenous ways of knowing and management practices that went unacknowledged in the political establishment of American public lands and their management. This isn't me trying to cancel John Muir or national parks. Rather, I think it's important to acknowledge our history and reckon with it so that we can ensure better access and decisions that benefit all people in the future. I believe that the outdoors are for all and people should have access to public lands so that they can feel the connection to these places and be inspired to advocate on their behalf. There are certainly real threats to the undeveloped land we have left and the species and ecosystems they support. I choose to believe that people probably don't want to see cow pies and uranium mines while they're out enjoying nature. So it's my hope that by creating an accessible outdoors, we can also build a community of people who prioritize less extractive uses of public lands and adopt a more sustainable mindset in general. All of these things are interconnected and those connections are what I'm interested in exploring further with you. So to keep my promise of a shorter episode, that's where we're gonna leave today. I hope this was a helpful step back before we tackle more topics in the future. Remember to subscribe to Outside Influence wherever you listen to podcasts and continue the conversation with me on Instagram at Michelle Goes Outside. Until next time, happy trails.